0: save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an ac pro recharge kit today be a pro with ac pro i'm mark feinzand executive reporter for mlb.com welcome to the executive access podcast brady anderson was a three-time all-star for the orioles playing in baltimore from 1988 through 2001 his best season came in 1996 when he hit 50 home runs with an OPS over 1,000, helping the Orioles to the first of two straight playoff appearances. He was inducted into the team's Hall of Fame in 2004, but his Orioles career was far from over. While he had been a presence around the team for several years, he was officially named as a Special Assistant to Executive Vice President of Baseball Operations Dan Duquette in 2012. He was then promoted to Vice President of Baseball Operations two years later. Unlike many front office executives, however, Anderson's influence goes beyond roster moves and negotiations. The 54-year-old can often be found in uniform, assisting players on the field or with their strength and conditioning programs. I sat down with Anderson on a backfield at the Orioles' spring training complex in Sarasota, Florida to discuss his career, the Jeffrey Mayer game, his move to the front office, and why he still likes to stand in the batter's box against Major League pitchers. Enjoy this conversation with Orioles' Vice President of Baseball Operations, Brady Anderson. Brady, thanks for taking some time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, So you were born in Silver Spring, Maryland, but you went to high school in Carlsbad, California. What was your team growing up?
1: Dodgers and Red Sox. Uh, Half my family's from Marblehead, Massachusetts. So they're huge Red Sox fans. My dad's family's side of the family's from Los Angeles. Huge Dodger fans. And then the common bond was they were both. Ted, both sides of the family are a huge Ted Williams fan.
0: And I read that you had the poster on your wall. I had the
1: poster. That right? was one of the gifts I had, so I had the you know, batting.
0: All the strikes, zones, you right. Know, uh,
1: uh, <clears throat> discipline at the plate was something that was ingrained at an early age. You read the science of hitting. Um, first lesson, get a good pitch to hit. You know that he's one of the greatest, and you're looking at his on base average compared to others. He and Babe Ruth, you know, they stood out so decidedly. Um, based on their own base averages. So that became what I wanted to be. As from a very young age, I viewed getting on base as the most important thing I could do. It served me well.
0: Uh, you get drafted by the Red Sox, 10th round of the 85 draft, less than three years later. You're the leadoff spot on opening day uh, in your big league debut. What do you remember most about that day against the Tigers at Fenway Park?
1: I remember quite a bit, actually. My dad and my uncle were in the stands. Sort of a hectic day, it was a day game. I don't remember sleeping that well the night before. I was facing Jack Morris. So I remember my first at bat. The first pitch of the, that I ever saw in my big league career was a was a high breaking pitch. I thought it was way too high. It was sort of the, the umpire let me know I was a rookie and there was a veteran on the mound right away. <laughs> and I struck out in four pitches. Um, nasty split, one that I'd never seen in the minors uh, to end my first at bat. And then I think I had three consecutive singles. And, you know, it was a great opening day, and that way I had three hits. I think Matt Noakes hit a couple homers off Roger Clemens, and we lost the game. But it was a great day for me, a great debut, and, you know, a great day for my family. Having, having uh, grown up like I did with such a huge fan of Williams and Yastrzemski, and then later on Fred Lynn uh, Jim Rice, it was, uh, I just thought it was fitting for me to have a first game of my career in Fenway Park.
0: Less than three months later, you get traded with Kurt Schilling for Mike Boddicker over to the Orioles. What was your reaction getting traded after playing only 41 games for the team, one of the teams you I grew didn't up like rooting it. for? I didn't
1: like it. Uh, there were a lot of trade rumors surrounding me, and one had me going uh, five other minor leaguers, or a couple major league prospects, to the, Red so- to the Orioles for Cal Ripken, I remember. So there were several different teams that I was rumored to be traded to. When you're a younger player, you look at being traded as a failure the team that you want to play for. And I was happy to play for the Red Sox. I was a huge Red Sox fan, happy to be drafted by them. So I didn't view it as another team wanted me. I viewed it as the Red Sox no longer wanted me. And then I continued to struggle um, after having zero struggles in the minor leagues, getting through the minor leagues without even a slump. So that was rough, but then it turned out to be the best thing ever for me. And, uh, you know, I'm an Oriole. That's for certain. Uh, That's my team. That's who I want to be associated with, and I never want to leave there once I established myself as
0: an Oriole. Fast forward five or six years, you're having an outstanding season, 1994. The Orioles are 63-49, and 49, right in the thick of the playoff race when the strike happens. What was that like for you and your teammates to see that season cut short?
1: I don't remember that much, to be honest. But the seasons kind of blend into each other. I do remember going home thinking, I'll be back soon. Did never thought it was going to go, that was going to be the last at bat I had I was in the middle of that really bothers me because I like the consistency of my individual career from 92 to 2000 uh, to 2000 so a good nine year stretch there and if you didn't know that we had a strike and then a lockout that bothers me because I think I only missed one or two games in 94 and 95 but look I played 112 games in 143 so that like crushes me and I like projecting my numbers for those two years and would have liked to see what they would have been if I had 700 at bats not whatever I had 450 and 550. Um, I don't remember much more than
0: that. Anderson's 1996 campaign was statistically the best of his 15-year major league career setting career highs in average RBIs and home runs. In the final game of the regular season he slugged his 50th home run becoming the first member of the Orioles to accomplish that feat. Let's take a listen. Oh yeah high in the air to right as has a chance this has a chance it is gone number 50 for Brady Anderson a new club record he becomes the first Oriole ever to hit 50 home runs and does it in his first at bat. wow that didn't take long now he can take the day off the next time you have a full season is 96 and you have uh, a monster year. You were sitting on 49 homers entering the final game of the season and you had the guy who was about to win the Cy Young Award on the mound. Was it satisfying to be able to hit number 50 against the best pitcher in the league that it year? It was
1: great. Uh, Pat Hankin became a teammate of mine but he was a mortal enemy when he wasn't a teammate. And Early on in his career, they went out to get him when he was facing me and he was screaming at his pitching coach like, I can get this guy and I could, I could see what he was, you know, he was kind of like he used to have his hat pulled down and give me that look I didn't like, and he used to get the best of me early on, but um, I started getting the best of him. I liked that kind of direct competition where I knew he was coming at me and I was coming at him, and I hit him really well that year. Still, he has great stuff, but the thing about Pat is he's such a He became a teammate of mine. He's one of my favorite teammates of all time. Nothing like the guy that I thought I was facing, which is good. You, wanna, you don't want to like the uh, opponent too much, and... He certainly didn't like me until he was a teammate. But um, I just remember before the game, I knew I had 49 home runs, obviously. And I just told myself I want one good, I want to put one good swing on, one good home run swing. And I did the first swing. I fouled a ball off that, I think was McGriff, I'm not sure, the first baseman almost, maybe it was Almost, I think it was Olerud actually. Almost caught the ball in foul territory and I thought, all right, I was kind of relaxed that I got my good swing off. Then all of a sudden it was 0-2 and I was in a battle. I think the count went back to two and two, and I think I, I hit a, um, I think it was a high slider, something like that, in the upper deck. I also remember that they had the roof open, which I thought would work against me. I liked the quiet surroundings of the closed roof, but I think actually the wind was, uh, might have helped me a little bit. Not as it was a, it was hit well, but I think it helped it stay straight a little better than it would have. So that was a big deal. My manager wanted to take me out of the game after that. I said no, I'm staying in. Got a couple more hits. The double my last at the bat. I remember that game very well.
0: Well, Let me ask you about a playoff moment that you weren't at the plate, but you were out in center field at the end of that 96 season. Uh, you guys played the Yankees in the ALCS, the Jeffrey Mayer home run. Sure. You're in center field. You have probably had the best view of it
1: of anybody. Uh, that was an easy, easy catch for Tarasco. It wasn't even one in which, if, you play, if you're in what a home run looks like, what a good catch looks like, that ball if nobody was on the field wouldn't even have hit midway up. He would have hit below the halfway point. A lot of balls, at times, you'll see guys jump for a ball that looks like they took a home run away, but they didn't really. Right. He would have hit the wall, right? That was a ball he wasn't even going to jump for. He was going to catch it face high, so it was a blown call, but it was also, they had six umpires, so they, they used a different umpiring format than they normally would have. Richie Garcia was in a dead sprint, running out toward the play, so he was, you know, he didn't have a very good view of it. He he shouldn't have had to run out there. It happened pretty fast. He probably didn't see it coming. And then none of his other, none of the umpires intervened and changed the call. And uh, I do remember in the chaos that ensued, I was just trying to get a a straightforward answer from the umpire, like, why don't you guys get together? And there's usually yelling and you either try to get the call changed or you you go on with life.
0: Uh, You said before you're an Oriole. Mm Mm-hmm. You were released after the 2001 season, ending 14 years there. Yeah. How difficult was that at the time?
1: It was unexpected. I had a, I had a horrific season, so there's no complaints, no excuses. I understood the reason, but I had one year left on my contract. I would like to come back and redeem myself after that year. I, do ha- I did have the capabilities. There's no doubt of going in and prolonged slumps and not being able to dig myself out, and that was no different. Physically, I was fine. Speed-wise, I was running really well. So it was, it was just part of life, that's how it goes. And then I got released again the next year by the Indians. And then my career ended actually in the minors with the Padres. That, I thought, was the unjust one. The Indians, sure, <laughs> the Orioles, sure. You gotta produce. You can't complain if you don't play well. But the minor leagues and the Padres, I still have a point of contention about that. I had a 455 on base. I don't think in this day and age I ever would've got released. It might have come down to my minor league salary at the time, believe it or not, which I would have certainly torn up the contract and played for free. I just wanted to play baseball. So that one was actually the hardest, believe it or not. That was the one that bothered me. I wanted to keep playing in Portland. Had a good thing going there, was mentoring uh, Jason Bay and some other young Padres. Um, That one hurt a little bit. You know, you think the other one, I I didn't perform. uh, That's what happens.
0: Three years after your Baltimore career ends, you're now retired, and the Orioles induct you into their Hall of Fame. What did that mean to you?
1: That was cool, but I I knew that was—I knew I was going to get in the Orioles Hall of Fame. I mean, that's not being arrogant. I I study baseball. I know that I'm in the top five in every single offensive category there is, and among you know, not even close. Offensively, it's kind of a slam dunk for the Orioles Hall of Fame. But what meant something to me, a huge deal to me, was as I was accruing the numbers as I was passing Eddie Murray and certain things or becoming the all-time stolen base hitter. That was a giant deal to me. Even in college, I always had that mentality. I almost stayed back next year in college because I wanted to f- finish off some of the UC Irvine records. Sounds ridiculous, okay? And I know it, but that was, that was my mindset. I've always been looking at numbers. When I was a kid, my dad used to quiz me on the 3,000-hit club. I could probably get pretty close to giving them all to you right now. It was just not to learn them or memorize them. Anybody could do that for trivia sake, but I actually was immersed in it. I like to know about Honus Wagner and Stan Musio and Paul Wayner and Cap Anson. I just liked the connection, reading the numbers, knowing about them, having a, a real conversation with my dad about a topic where I could, I could have as much knowledge as
0: he did. When you retired, did you think, I'm going to stay in baseball in some definitely, form or fashion?
1: Definitely not. I was convinced I would rebel against that. My dad would always say, you should coach, you should manage. I'm like, there's no way. There's no chance of that happening. Then I had my daughter, who I had joint custody of, and I certainly didn't want to leave her when she was one, two, three, four, and five years old. So that was important to me. It was interesting that, but my experience in AAA led to my post-baseball career, because when I went to AAA, you know, 39 years old, I think, after 15 years in the majors, I was never big on, um, seniority uh, Cal and I didn't play that game we treated the rookies just like we treated the veterans which I think is appropriate when there's a rookie and a 15 year major league comes back and you're on the plane they're gonna say oh where do you want to sit and so it was you know I sit where I, you guys sit where you want to sit and I'll find an open seat you know I don't want to be treated differently but it was a clear co- sort of leader of that team and um, I think from that moment players on the that were on the run that Triple A team in, in um, Portland started reaching out to me when I wasn't playing anymore to help me with their career. I think Mark Quinn was the first one and then later teammates that were rookies when I was with the Orioles. Jerry Harrison first who at th- that was one of my... I'm still very proud of how I helped Jerry after two miserable offensive seasons then his best offensive season. Uh, Brian Roberts. So the way you treat younger players <clears throat> as a veteran that that's what came back and led to my post-baseball career. That's what got me back into it. That reputation, having players that i had never met before at the Orioles contact me, ask ownership or our GMs, could Brady come and help me, as I did with Nolan Reimhold in, in Norfolk and several other players. So that was the um, sort of the pathway to my post-baseball career.
0: You aren't the typical front office executive in terms of, of duties. You're uniform a lot. Sure. Um, coaching, strength training, etc. What's your typical day like during the baseball it season? It
1: varies quite a bit, but that was the first thing. Dan and Buck and I were all brought in around the same time. There's a little variance in a couple of months separate us, but all around the same time. So, First thing was to get the strength and conditioning what I believe to be what it should be. Help with nutrition and just individual performance. Because it's critical. I mean, it's the way that you can simplify baseball, if you have a nice scouts, you draft the best players, you have a good player development team, and the players that you already have, you get the most out of their abilities. Or if you can take one of the eight players, everyday players, and make two of them better, you've increased the team exponentially. And that's like crucial, the idea of making one player better and then making another player better. That's what I'm good at, that's what I'm passionate about, and that's what I believe shows up in team victories
0: you've got a close relationship with the Angelos family. Sure. Did that start when you were a player? Not a lot of players necessarily have you know, close relations with their owners. No, you
1: know, um, my free agent year was not after my 50 homer season. People seem to think that somehow.
0: It was
1: year after that. And Peter sort of had a mandate that he would not deal with the agents. He was gonna deal with Cal directly first, because Cal was the guy. Messina second, because Messina was the guy. And me third. And that was fine by me. He was, made it clear that he's going to keep all of us together, and he's going to do those in succession. And so we took care of Cal, then he took care of Messina, and then that was me after the 97 playoffs. So I stuck around and had dinner with him. That was the first real encounters I've had with him. Back then, you didn't really have, I didn't anyway. I wasn't in the manager's office. I, you know, I knew the manager, and we had back and forth, but it was all about playing. And I didn't come and sit in the manager's office. I rarely had any interaction with the GM, and certainly not with the owner. So that was, uh, and, I, and I love the guy from day one. I mean, he's, not, he's, he's movie worthy, this guy. You know, he's, he's one in a once in a lifetime character. Good friend, great person, inspiring guy. Funny, underrated funny. I remember we are at a restaurant, you know, we're walking through the restaurant and people are like, Peter, come on, bring him back, bring him back. You gotta sign him, you gotta sign him. Don't let him get away and that's the problem. They all love you here. They don't know what
0: a scoundrel you are. (laughs) Not many people use the word scoundrel. uh, I like that. I'll never forget that. That's really funny. You recently said of Peter Angelos, quote, we have an owner who, if it's not clear that he's willing to spend beyond our market position by now, it never will be. Resources haven't been an issue with us in quite some time. That said, how tough is it to compete in a division with two big market, big spending teams? Like the Yankees, super and Red Sox. important.
1: They're good. They're great organizations. They have uh, massive payrolls, but they also have good decision makers, and so they're they're thorough. Farm systems are tight. Their scouting departments tight. Yeah. But you know, if you just look at the, uh, I mean, think about the Yankees. It's just the fact. It's it's fine. It's just uh, if you're competing against a team with even a 50 million dollar more, you know, it's. $5, 10 million dollar players extra it's a pretty big deal
0: did you feel like it was more of a level playing field when you played because well, you and the Yankees had the it same was. roughly the same payroll sometimes you guys were actually even ahead of them
1: yeah it's definitely it definitely was it's indisputable isn't it I don't think anybody argue that right right
0: but did it feel as a player did you pay attention to that stuff
1: I never felt disadvantaged due to payroll in, in my career as an Oriole um, in a way that I'm certain players in the Rays have going to get against the Yankees and the Red Sox. Right. There's no comparison. That's not even controversial.
0: It's apples and oranges when it comes to payrolls. I read something that said you evaluate pitchers by getting into the box against them. Is that right? It's one of the ways, sure. What's the biggest difference between pitchers now and pitchers when you played? Or is there a difference?
1: I never thought I'd say this. And I started thinking this a few years ago. As a hitter, you built up a real hatred for pitchers. And the strike zones were pretty wide when I played and they're determined a lot by tenure rather than the, what the definition of the strike zone should be. Like your first bat against Jack Morris. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, it's not the strike zone because it has shifted from this long, skinny rectangle to a more of a square. These guys can't throw inside without one, either getting a look from the hitter or two, getting a warning. It's not that easy to throw a baseball exactly what you want. If you want to throw a baseball, up and in, chest high, and you miss by six inches, and it goes off a guy's back or off his elbow. It's not always that you're trying to hit a guy. So they've taken away some of the things that I think is that I think are well within their rights. That's 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 the biggest difference. But if you're asking me, the stuff-wise, things like that, you know, I don't have to face everybody to know this. I think I think the the greatest some of the greatest starters ever pitched in. When I was playing, and I think every single generation has—they have all these collection of great starters. Conversely, I think now it's inarguable that the quality starting the seventh inning in the bullpens is greater than it ever was. And a lot of those guys that are making those bullpens great used to be starters. Um, we have great examples in our own bullpen. Tommy Hunter was our closer for a little while, then Zach Britton, both starters. Brian Mattis was a left-on-left specialist, another first round pick who was a starter so that's probably the biggest difference and the, f- and the focus as you see is shifting on the importance of bullpens and how look at our own bullpen we've uh, one of our one of the reasons we've thrived and made three playoffs uh, since 2012 is because of the dominance of our bullpen you,
0: uh, you talked about relievers this is apropos of nothing but you you saw Mariano Rivera the first five years of his career basically that's it. Uh, yeah. He, That's it. When did he start? It's 95. Career? He was a starter a little bit. 96 was his oh. first year of dominance as a reliever. So five or I six got years. Him for Twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like facing him?
1: It was the most different experience of any hitter. Every, I mean, there's a couple. Randy Johnson is a experience onto itself. It's t- you know it's unlike anything. Mariano's was different because he was a righty and I'm a lefty, and you knew he only had one pitch. Still couldn't get to it. And I did all right off him, right Hid around 300 off him. But I hit, I think, a couple balls hard. I think most of my hits, if you went and looked at them, were, I think I had a, one bullet, a broken bat double, and probably five broken bats to Jeter that he, that his little jump move he couldn't get me on. Right. Didn't strike me out, didn't walk me. Might have struck me out once. I don't think he walked me ever. It was just weird to have to, there was actually a time in my life when I remember thinking, can I train myself to swing at a ball in a different area than I, my eyes see it? I actually thought that. And it's the, he's the only guy. That, I remember Jay Givens. But he was sitting on the bench saying, what do you do against Mariano? As if I had some secret. I think they might have sent me to get one hit off him. Right. So you had to move around the box, try different things, think of ridiculous things like, can I swing at a ball six inches inside where I think my eyes are? where I see the ball is so that's that's what it was just it was a four seamer with no indication it was going to break There was no real seam the break was late he could do different things where he could start it outside and if you thought you were uh, cheating in he'd start it outside he, he had a just a different experience altogether you, you have to face it to know why that one pitch can be so dominant
0: would you bring a like an old bat up with you knowing that there was a good chance oh, it was going to break? That's, a, that's a funny. I don't, know, <laughs> I don't know if you heard that story or not. I did not.
1: Alomar and Palmera used to have this bat called, they nicknamed Stumpy, specifically for Mariano. <laughs> it was 32, I used a big bat. I used 34 and a half inches, 34 ounces. And I choked up. But they had 32, a 32 inch bat, I think it was 32, 32. It was just a, you know, it was a tiny little bat. I, and a lot of guys use smaller bats now, but that was an exceptionally small bat. 32, 32. I didn't ask him. It's normally, protocol—you ask somebody—but I'm like, whatever. I'm not gonna break Stumpy. <laughs> <laughs> he got Stumpy. I took him up. I took him up one time. I think I choked up too, and he
0: still broke it. Wow, it's just a hazard of the different. job, right? It was different. 2012, the Orioles returned to the postseason, first time since you were there in 1997. What was it like to be you were you were now part of the front office? What was it like to be a part of that ride to see Baltimore rejuvenated as a baseball town again?
1: It was great. I mean, one thing about Baltimore. The fans are awesome. They love baseball. It was just nice to see them excited again. I was used to playing in front of packed houses all the time, starting with 92, a lot of sellouts. They had to move in extra stands in the playoffs. Seeing all that orange, it was loud. It was loud. It was great. The fans were excited. It's a big deal. Felt like uh, that, that's, the, that's the thing too about Baltimore is you, you want to give the fans. The fans are proud of the Orioles there. It's long, they have a long tradition, a long tradition of great players. World Championships, so uh, it's a baseball city, and that was
0: that was fun to see us return. You've worked with Dan Duquette for a long time now. What have you learned most working with him?
1: I like working with Dan, because uh, it's more of a collaboration. It's never been that sort of mentorship, so we kind of talk as equals. And he has New England roots, Red Sox roots. We have a lot of he loved Ted Williams. So I think that was that, that what you mentioned earlier about that um, chart on my wall. I casually I remember I was at dinner with Dan the first day that he got hired. I was just casually telling him a story, story that you mentioned earlier about. About a half hour later, he said, "Your uncle really got you that chart for Christmas, huh?" <laughs> <He> still <laughs> still thinking that, about still, it. Still had that. And you used month. to
0: travel around with the science of hitting book, right? I did all the time. Yeah. You once said it drives you crazy when people try to tab. Some executive as sabermetricians and some as, quote-unquote, baseball guys. Oh. When were you first drawn to analytics? I mean, obviously, you... you I was a kid. Talk about numbers a lot.
1: Yeah. I always knew the importance of on-base average over batting average. Always. Based my career on it. Had to oddly defend it sometimes. And there would be real situations, real situations, where I had greater power, higher on base average than the people that they wanted to come hit leadoff and I me. Mean, even up to that 50 homer season I was still they still were talking about moving me down to sixth it seems you know I was in my prime I was around 390 on base averages you know for a long period of time so it was I was always drawn to that the slugging average um, the on base average those are what you had the ERAs back when I was a kid you know more important than the wins um, so I, I've, I've embraced it. You have to embrace it. You try to embrace the best ideas that men have, right? Men and women have. I mean, to, to deny the best ideas that people have, you're just proving yourself Stubborn. to not be paying attention. <laughs> you know? I gave you a, a casual example earlier about, about different, comparing different generations with war, which is futile. I think one of the things I'm good at, every, I think one of the things is I know what I'm good at and know what I'm not good at, I think I'm good at seeing what's right before my eyes. Some people aren't. It does help to have, in my. I do use my baseball experiences. How I was improperly coached is a big um, reason why I coach the way I do. Being super careful to not demoralize any player, cut into their self-esteem, knowing that even if you're telling them the right thing, if, it, if, it, if they don't believe in it, it's the wrong thing. It's a pretty simple notion. Knowing that there might be reasons why uh, Greg Maddox or Randy Johnson do uh, particularly well with guys on base, just as an example. I've been on second base, bases loaded with Randy Johnson, and watched him sit at 93 the whole game. Now there's bases loaded, no outs, and for the next 15 pitches, he's 98. Back to 93, start off the next inning. So there are certain reasons it would be hard to figure out definitively, especially in small samples why that might be so, why, why certain pitchers' ERAs might consistently be lower than their FIP. Right? That's why I just, it's just fascinating to me to combine the two, to know that there's analysts out there who are continually trying to find better ways to make predictive analysis, to give you that, the most perfect portrait, like I said earlier, that you're looking for. I, I just think that's interesting.
0: Ripken once said you've always had a much more advanced concept of cross-training, plyometrics, your diet. He said you're ahead of the curve. Did all that just come naturally to you? Did you study it? Did you have to learn about it? How did, how did all this come about no, for you? I immersed myself in it.
1: Again, sort of things happen by, some things happen because you seek them out. I sought them out, and I also was lucky because the European track team trained at UC Irvine.
0: So this is even as far back as when you were in college?
1: No, well, it, was, no it was right when I left college. And so there were world-class athletes and long jumpers and sprinters on the track at UC Irvine, and I was... Walking down the track at this time, I, I think I was, I don't know if I was in the majors or just about, it's a couple couple track people knew who I was, I think the local ones, just that I was a baseball player.
0: You'd work out there in the off-season?
1: I was going to the baseball field. Okay. And a couple guys said, hey Brady, I uh, want to run some 200s with us? They were like, one guy named Christian Akabusi who won a silver medal in the Olympic. they were training for the Olympics. Right. Another one was Jay Thorson who was uh, one of the elite American decathletes, a uh, world-class indoor sprinter named Marty Cruley and a German triple jumper, I don't know his name. Want to run some 200s? Sure. I don't have any spikes, they handed me some spikes, and that was it from that moment on. I always wanted, I, I had already hired a, a uh, sprint coach for technique, I had hired one, but to really push it and to immerse myself in the track world That that gave me my education for training, watching these guys, like a Daley Thompson, two-time gold medalist, in the decathlon, which was, that was my dream as a kid. If you wanted my dream, to be a decathlon. I wanted to win the decathlon a gold medal. By the time I was 17, I'm like, hmm, I don't know how to throw the javelin discus. (laughs) Or any of these things. I don't know how to do any of the events. I can run. I could probably think about something else. (laughs) So, but that was the uh, foundation um, to, to be around a a group of people who, one, they're intelligent, because it's this individual sport, and I think they have to have a certain level of introspection and devotion to be able to go out and train on your own. Two, to fight for hundreds of seconds, inches. You know, it's a purest sport. It's, there's no... It's pretty objective. It's a great... It's, you know, you watch boxing, there's arguments. You watch, you know, the Olympics, they're judging. Track and field is pretty pure. Who runs the fastest jumps the highest, throws the farthest. It's great. But they fight for every single thing they have. They know that you can't be lazy, you can't take off. And so that mentality suited me. And it laid the foundation for helping people get stronger and faster and and showing them the benefits, how it crosses over to their own sport. How
0: would you do against the sprinters?
1: I got crushed that first day. (laughs) I mean, I came out, I was beating them all after 40. They knew how to run, and they knew the energy system involved in 200. Got eaten alive, finished last, did the next one in five minutes rest, finished last, threw up in between <laughs> two and five, came back for number six. But the next off season, I was, I was on that, and I entered an open track meet, and that decathlete that I mentioned was in there, and I ate him up in the 200.
0: That must have felt good. Ran
1: and Well, yeah, because there's <laughs> progress. Again, it's, I didn't care if he even won. You're, I'm still running, you're still running against the clock. That's right. another beautiful thing. You know, you're still, you'd still rather run a 22-second 200 and finish last than run a 23-second and finish first. That's, that's what I like
0: about it. It's always a competition against yourself. Buck said that the trust you build with your players is one of your greatest strengths. Do you think there needs to be more communication between front office types and the guys in the clubhouse? Or do you think there's a separation of church and state, so to speak? No.
1: Well, again, it's just how you view me. I don't... I'm not... Front office type, or whatever. and I'm not. You work coaching. in the front office. Yeah, it's just, I guess. <laughs> but uh, there has to be, in my opinion, just in general, without the criminality, a more mafia type. Never let anybody outside the family know what you're thinking. Okay, you keep you keep confidences like they are, and that's a, that's a rare thing in this day and age to be able to keep your mouth shut when you know something and that's how you build confidences and uh, even internally there's leaks all the time all these different teams that's not what I want to be about even now I'm dealing with agents I find they really just people want to be they want you to look them in the eye and tell them the truth respond to their texts answer their phone calls get a lot of credit for just common courtesies
0: so you said you don't see yourself going into a coaching career or managerial career do you have a goal of becoming a general manager? Or are you happy in the, the kind of role you have now?
1: Uh, no, I want expanded roles. I always want to do more, help more, do more. But when you have somebody, and this is, uh, this is the truth, obviously, um, there's different types of mentalities people have, and I saw it dating back to my play in the minor leagues. You knew there were certain teammates coming up through the minors. They were not rooting for you. It was like, it was killing them to see you succeed. And I was never like that. I had competitors, there's an outfielder in the, our system that came up with me named Greg Lotzar. He was drafted around the same time as I was. He, I was ninth, I think he was 10th, or I was 10th, he was 11th. He hit 300 his first year. We were always, I was, in my mind, he was my competition, but it was good competition. I wanted him to hit 350, I just want to hit 351. <laughs> um, that's what it was, you know, you get it, there's a group of players, you know, they love it. Oh. I'm hitting 200, so well, this guy's hitting 190-er. And when I got to AAA the first time, I could really sense that my own teammates were sort of, they weren't like supportive, like a real team would be, you know? Conversely, you take that, there's only 30 of these GM jobs in the, in the world they are super hard to get and hard to keep, but I'd rather help the GM so much that he keeps his job for a long period of time, which he's done or he's so sought after that he leaves somewhere else, and when he leaves, he would he would say, hey, i got to take you with me. And then I would have to say, no, I'm staying. Or Yeah, let's go. That, that would be much more appealing to me, to help the people so much and to not worry because there are people that are probably hoping, I mean, as crazy as it sounds, there might be people that if the team fails, they're next in line. I don't want to do that. It doesn't do anything for me.
0: Vice President of Baseball Operations, Brady Anderson. Appreciate the time. It was a lot of fun. Many thanks to Brady Anderson for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. The Orioles are in one of baseball's toughest divisions this season, but with an explosive offense starring Manny Machado, Adam Jones, and Jonathan Scope, and a retooled rotation featuring Alex Cobb and Andrew Kashner, Baltimore has high hopes for 2018. Our next episode will feature a conversation with White Sox Executive Vice President Kenny Williams. We'll discuss his decision to pursue baseball over football, what it meant to him to become only the third African-American general manager in history, his memories of Chicago's 2005 World Series run, and why the team's current rebuilding process has breathed new life into the job for him. You can search for executive access on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear... Leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about executive access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinzand.
2: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it.